Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The word of the Lord. We're continuing on this morning with our series that started last week called Gospel Driven. What does it mean to be gospel-driven people? For 14 weeks this summer, we're looking at some of the most clear declarations of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, the gospel, in the letters of Paul. And so today we're looking at Romans 8 and seeking to understand what it is that God would tell us through his gospel message, as Paul writes in Romans 8. So in terms of imagery, the gospel gospel is like a warm fire on a cold day. What are we going to do with a warm fire on the cold day? Are we going to stand far from the fire, kind of rubbing our hands, trying to keep warm, unsure whether we're allowed to get close to that fire, afraid it will burn us? Are we going to turn away from the fire because I don't need that fire. I'll go find warmth on my own. Or are we going to come near? Are we going to rest close by the fire and let it warm us? That's essentially what Paul is trying to get at in Romans 8. He's saying there is a fire that will warm you on a cold day. Are you choosing to go there, to rest there in what God has done for you? And let that give you warmth this day. Or are you trying to find warmth on your own? In a more complicated way of saying the same thing, Richard Lovelace, a theologian, in his book, his seminal book, um, Dynamics of the Spiritual Life, put it this way. Only a fraction of Christians are appropriating the justifying work of Christ, that is, the gospel, applying the gospel in their lives. And below the surface... Many Christians are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. We tend to start each day with our personal security, resting not on the sacrifice of Christ, not on the gospel, but on our present feelings or recent achievements. 
You see, when we're not living in the gospel, when we're not gospel-driven, when we're not warming ourselves by the fire of what God has done for us, we become insecure, insecure about our status before God in comparison to others and how I'm doing with them, and insecure in our own identity with ourselves. So Paul's aim in Romans 8 is to assure the Christians about the gospel and help them to apply the gospel in their lives. He starts off in verse 1 talking about now, now that we are in Christ. In other words, a new era has come for those who are in Christ. And then he goes on to unfold it. And he wants us to see how the gospel can affect our own identity and our approach in life. And as I was reading through this, a couple things became evident to me that Paul was really talking about different ways of living, different ways that we approach God. I would say, based on what I was seeing here, there's three ways we can approach God. We can approach life. There's the religious, the non-religious way, and the gospel-driven way. Or to put it in Paul's actual words, it's either life in the spirit as opposed to life under the law or life ruled by my own flesh. So Paul starts by declaring the gospel and then moves to how we apply it in our lives. And and just over the next few minutes this this morning, I want to look at the passage itself and try to see what it says. And it's a little bit complicated because Paul writes with this rhetoric and logic of Greco-Roman writing. Then I want to explore the three ways to live And finally, I want to look at that phrase, no condemnation in Christ Jesus, which is our memory verse for this week. So let's start with the passage itself. The passage begins with Paul declaring the gospel in verses 1 through 4. So we get the gospel declaration in verses 1 through 4, but what I've found when I'm reading this highly logical rhetoric of Paul, this Greco-Roman style of writing, sometimes I get lost in the words. So I'll go back through and highlight or outline the key phrases. So let's look at the, the passage highlighted. So the passage highlighted goes like this. The passage highlighted says, there's now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. The Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from sin and death. For God has done what the law could not do. By sending his own Son for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. That helps a little bit, but it's still a little bit confusing sometimes. So I've found it helpful even to summarize with key phrases or words. And if I was going to summarize what Paul is saying, in verse 1, he's talking about pardon. In verse 2, freedom. In verse 3, justice. In verse 4, that we are right or righteous with God. And so it unfolds like this, if I was going to paraphrase it. Verse 1, you are guilty. You should be condemned. But you're not. You're pardoned. There's no condemnation anymore. In fact, you're free, verse 2. In Christ Jesus, you have been set free from sin and death. Sin is not your identity, and eternal death is not your future. And God was able to do this because he did bring justice, verse 3. God has done what the law, obeying the law, couldn't do. He sent his son as a sin offering, bearing sin's condemnation, so that now you and I, verse 4, are right. 
We can live by the Spirit because we have been made right with God, and we can walk in and fulfill God's purposes for us. If you're here this morning and you still are not sure what to make of this Christian thing, if you're still trying to figure it out, you're agnostic, you're, you're kind of in, in the realms of trying to figure out whether you buy into this thing, this is the basic Christian message. The basic Christian message is this. God, through Jesus Christ, has done what religion cannot do. God, through Jesus, has made us right with God. Becoming a Christian is as simple as believing that that's the case, that you are no longer condemned. You are forgiven and right with God because of Jesus. But Paul moves on from declaring the gospel to saying we need to apply and appropriate the gospel in our lives. So in verses 5 through 8, he starts talking about contrasting mindsets. There's the mindset of the flesh and the mindset of the spirit. We read in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. John Stott, a preacher and commentator, commentating on these verses, said, what Paul is saying is our mindset comes out of our very nature. If you are away from God, turn from God, then you're going to be set on the flesh. But if you've been renewed by faith in Christ, your mind is going to be set on the Spirit. He puts it this way. In verse 5, the people described think like this because they are like this. Their nature determines their mindset. And if we're going to kind of make it a little bit simpler, we see in verses 6, 7, and 8, Paul making these contrasts between two ways of approaching life. One is the mindset of the flesh. And that word flesh is actually probably better understood in verses 6, 7, and 8, as the the self, the sinful self, the sin nature, that part of me that is set against God. And you can see it in the word flesh. The word flesh, if you get rid of the H, is an anagram for self, right? So when Paul says flesh, he doesn't mean the things that tigers like to eat. He means that, that part of me that is always turned against God. My sinful self is turned against God and wants to go in that direction. But if I'm in Christ, I'm now in the Spirit and able to walk in the Spirit. And they they play out two different ways of approaching everything. One, one, the flesh way, is always hostile to God. It cannot submit to God. It won't submit to God. And it is the way that leads to death, Paul puts it. Spiritual death now and death death eternal to come. When we live serving ourselves, we're heading in the direction of death. And the opposite is true. Paul says when you're filled with the Spirit by faith in Christ, you now are able to walk in the ways of God. That life of faith in Christ is a life filled with peace, which means wholeness, completeness, harmony with God, with others, with myself. And we have life in the Spirit because God is present in and with us now and always. So he finishes, he finishes in verses 9, 10, and 11 
by assuring us, affirming us that we are believers in Christ and what that means. And he says basically, look, you may struggle with sin the rest of your life if you're a believer, but don't think that you are condemned, that you are a sinner to the end. You are no longer condemned. The Spirit has given you life. Walk that way. Even though you're going to struggle and wrestle with sin your whole life, don't let that define you. You are in Christ, and now you are spiritually alive and will be forever. So that's my quick summary of the entire passage. It's very thick stuff, but here's the question that I want to answer, really, is Paul declares the gospel, tries to get us to apply it, and so then I would say, how do we do it? How do we live the gospel-driven life? Well, one way to start to think about it is to think about the three different ways that Paul alludes to in this passage. The three different ways of approaching God in life are religious, non-religious, and gospel-driven. And so we've come up with some great imagery for you. The first is what it is to be religious or law-keeping. To be religious or law-keeping, if you're that sort of person, what matters to you? What matters is morality, goodness, and keeping all the rules. And the interesting thing is Paul's talking about religion, like the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, But you could say the same about any religion that has a series of things you have to accomplish in order to appease the God or get into heaven. For the religious, they must keep the rules. And the rules don't even have to be religious. You could also be part of a traditional culture or a family where there is all sorts of rules that you're living under. Rules that you know you have to keep. The primary motivation for the religious is fear. What's God going to do if I don't live up? What will my parents do if I don't obey? Or pride. What will people think of me if I don't live up? In the imagery here, the religious stand under the law, always thinking, I I must keep all the rules or I can't live with myself. But what Paul makes clear is, in our passage, is that moral goodness and law-keeping is a weight we cannot bear. Because we are sinful, we will never fully keep the laws of God or any laws. You can see this playing out in the way that somebody who is under kind of a, a parental demands for perfection, some people come from a family or a culture where parental demands demand perfection in grades or in sports or music, in the university you get into, in the behavior that you have in the community, in the job that you take, the spouse that you take. And if you live under parental perfection demands, you're always trying to live up to what you think your parents expect of you. Even when you get older, you might be 40, 50 years old, but you're always projecting, what will my mom and dad think? You become enslaved to their perfection demands and it crushes us and you're never sure, never sure if dad's going to approve, if mom's going to be okay with this choice. Whether it's parental demands or culture or religion or the Ten Commandments, 
When we try to live under the law, it enslaves us. The second way to live is the non-religious way. The non-religious way, the flesh way, as Paul talks about it, is living for self. What, is it, what matters to the non-religious? It's freedom and autonomy. Because to the non-religious, there's no right or wrong. What you do is you find what makes you happy and do what you want. The primary motivation is not fear. The primary motivation is my feelings. It's my appetites or my personal goals. For the non-religious, they stand over law, whether it's religious law or cultural laws or their parents' expectations or the community around them's demands or expectations. Because to the non-religious, each person, each person must choose how to live. And basically, the the feeling is, I'm going to be okay so long as I'm happy. The east and west coasts of America and pretty much every city in America is filled with non-religious people who have fled rural and traditional parts of America in order to get away from the expectations of their parents or their backwards community. And what ends up happening is that cities and places like this are filled with moral relativists, people who say, I'm going to pick and choose what's right for me. And honestly, that's the way all Americans are, right? We have a natural tendency towards this. The challenge is when we live this way, we actually don't have integrity in our thought or our life usually because we pick and choose certain things to do and certain things that we don't care about. So we might be incredibly charitable to the poor but incredibly promiscuous sexually. We might be the kind of people who feels like you need to be honest, very honest, and demand honesty. And in another side of our lives, we're completely self-consumed and don't care about anybody else. See, ultimately, when we pick and choose, what we're doing is that I become the sole arbiter of what's right and what's good. And while it looks like you're ruling everything, ultimately you're ruled by your flesh, by your selfish desires, because you have nobody else and nothing else to check it. You know, the interesting thing is both, when you put both of them side by side, both the religious and the non-religious, both of them are ways of rejecting God. Both the religious, the religious reject God by acting as their own savior. Because what they're trying to do is keep all the rules in order to justify themselves before God. They are on a self-salvation project. The non-religious, on the other hand, reject God by acting as God. Because they reject any other authority besides themselves. They reject the laws and ways of God and set their own course and say, I am Lord and God of my life. But there is a third way the gospel-driven way. In the gospel-driven way, I admit my need for God because I can't keep his laws on my own. And I accept him as my Savior and Lord because I cannot save myself. The gospel-driven way, as Paul talks about it, is life in the Spirit. 
What matters is not trying to keep all the rules or having autonomy and freedom. What matters is what God has done through Jesus Christ. And when I am gospel-driven, I will admit my sinfulness and inability to keep God's laws, but I will trust in Christ crucified that my debts have been paid, that I am right by grace and not by my works, and I will believe what God has done for me, and I will know that I am forgiven, no longer condemned. The motivation for living is not fear or pride or, or my own selfish appetites. The motivation for living is gratitude to God, love of God, worship of God. See, what I have found is the more that I walk in the gospel, the more that the Spirit of God living in me begins to change my desires so that my desires are not for my own wants, but they're desiring what God wants. The Spirit dwelling in me assures me that I'm in Christ so I don't have to keep trying to perform and achieve. And the Spirit guides me to walk in the ways of God instead of walking in my own ways and feeding my own appetites. And what Paul tells us is when we are trusting in the gospel, walking by the Spirit, we actually fulfill the laws of God. Instead of rejecting and standing on the laws or trying to bear them up, we're actually in the middle of them. I'm walking in God's ways, not because I fulfill everything perfectly, but because I depend on Christ who did fulfill everything perfectly. The beauty of a gospel-driven life, a spirit-led life, is that I'm free from the demands of rule-keeping and the law. I'm free from the tyranny of my own flesh and selfishness. And I'm finally free to enjoy God, to live the life I am made to live when I'm walking in the realm of God's purposes for me. Now, the difficulty I've found with this is that even as Christians, it might not be that we are walking in religiousness or walking in non-religiousness. We're trying to live in the gospel, but we will tend to fall into either of those sides seasonally or in given areas of our life or even in a given day. Think about how we deal with guilt, right? The religious, the religious deal with guilt through penance and discipline. If you're religious and you've messed up, if you've crossed the line, you've got to feel really, really bad. And you've got to pay. You've got to make amends. There's a great imagery of that in the movie The Mission from a couple decades ago where Robert De Niro is playing a conquistador in South America and he kills, he kills a close friend of his. And he feels like he has to make up for it. He can't just accept God's forgiveness. So what he does is he decides to try and amend his life. And he follows a missionary deep into the Amazonian rainforest. But in following the missionary, he carries with him a bag, a gigantic bag filled with hundreds and hundreds of pounds of armor and swords and helmets and shields because that was his past life. And he feels like he's got to make it up to God by carrying these hundreds of pounds deep into the forest. When you're being religious, walking in religiousness, you cannot accept forgiveness by itself. You've got to feel bad. You've got to fill in the gap. 
because you're never sure you've done enough to be forgiven. How do the non-religious deal with guilt? Guilt? What guilt? Why feel guilt? Guilt is just a social construct. It's an archaic thing. It's something your parents are trying to put on you. Don't let your parents or religion control you. But of course, in throwing off guilt or suppressing guilt, the non-religious become more and more callous to sin. When we suppress guilt and deny that sin is sin, eventually our consciences, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, become seared, unable to feel the prick of the Holy Spirit. You see, when somebody walks into horrendous evil like we've seen around the globe throughout history, it's because they have walked further and further and further away from the ways of God until their conscience can no longer be touched by the pain and suffering of other people that they're inflicting on them. To throw off guilt altogether with a seared conscience is not the right way either. Rather, what we're called to do is have a gospel-driven response to guilt. When the gospel is driving me, my spirit softens my conscience, and I actually feel really guilty. But guilt leads me to confess my sin because I can trust in what God has done for me. But I still find that in my own life, some days I act as if I'm led by the Spirit, and other days I live as if under the law when it comes to responding to guilt. You see, what happens when I'm in my religious mode and I feel guilty is I become a lawyer. I defend my actions, or I prove that I've actually kept the law, or I try to argue on a technicality. But when I'm led by the Spirit, you know what I do? I openly confess my sin because I know I'm forgiven and no longer condemned. I have nothing to hide. You see, that law-keeping side of me is always asking, what do I have to do? Is there 10 commandments, 600 rules? Give them to me so I can make a checklist. When When I'm walking in the Spirit, there's no limit to what I'm willing to do to please God. I want to love God and love my neighbor. When I'm trying to relate to God and others on the basis of law-keeping, I begin comparing myself to others and usually judging them. And I have to keep hiding my weaknesses to maintain my identity and status. But when I'm driven by the gospel and filled with the Spirit, when it comes to other people, I can actually be humble because my identity is secure in Christ, even if they are better than me, because both of us find our identity in Christ. So I can admit my offenses to my family, to my friends. I can open up about my struggles. There's three ways to live. Religious and law-keeping. Non-religious and going my own way. Or gospel-driven, falling on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. We need to apply the gospel in our lives. And that's why I had us memorizing Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, not too many years ago, I remember struggling with sin and with guilt and feeling that burden. 
And I would go to places like church, and when we confessed our sins or had an open confession time, I would try to make tears come out of my eyes. Because I thought if I really felt bad, then God would forgive me, right? And I wrestled with wanting to please God, but walking in sin. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 7, actually. He says, what I want to do, I do not do. And the very things I don't want to do are the things I end up doing. To put it another way, Paul is saying, I do want to please God, but I keep not pleasing God. I want to turn from sin, but I keep walking back into it. Who's going to rescue me from this sinful self? And he finishes chapter 7, and I remember reading this and hearing it almost for the first time, even though I'd been a Christian for years. Who will rescue me? Jesus Christ has. And the very next chapter, the very next verse is, so even though you're constantly wrestling, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I find myself going back to verses like this again and again and again. In Romans 12, 2, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Go back to gospel truths that we are pardoned, we are freed, we are no longer condemned, we have peace with God, we are right with God, we have been made alive through the Spirit. Go back to these truths and let these truths transform your mind so that you can actually find your identity and worth in what God says about you now in Christ. That we can trust Christ's performance. We can live by grace and not our own. In our vision and values, one of them is gospel-driven. And what we talk about is allowing the gospel to define my identity and my worldview. In other words, my approach in life. And when we do so, the gospel permeating our thoughts softening our conscience, directing our lives, causes us to increase in our dependence on God and our humility with one another. So let the Spirit of God, through the truth of the gospel, transform your desires and direction so that you can live in freedom, peace, and joy. There is great joy in the gospel-driven life. I want to go back to Romans 8.1 to close, and think about this. Think about what this truth means to you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. My guess is, my guess is, many of us in this room have things that we've done that we are horribly, horribly embarrassed by, deeply guilty because of. There are things that you have done that you know are wrong, maybe even are wrong illegally. Things that nobody else knows about, maybe not even your spouse or best friends or parents or siblings. And even just mentioning it, something comes to your head. (laughs) But what this tells us is whatever you have done, Christ took care of on the cross. Whatever you have done, thought, 
said, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It has been paid for. It is finished. You are pardoned. You are free. So trust, fall on the grace of God in Jesus Christ because he doesn't hold it over you. He bears the penalty for you and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What joy there is in the gospel. Let's pray. God, when our consciences convict us, when we're ruled by the tyranny of ourselves, when we're trying to live up to the rules of man and of religion, bring us to the cross, to the good news of what you have done in Jesus Christ. And may we depend on what you have accomplished for us, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so may the Spirit give us life and joy, and peace. Amen. Speak.